back to uh, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. I'm Ryan from the Moose Dead World, and uh, I'm here with Martin, who is from nothing. He doesn't really... Yeah, nothing. Doesn't really do anything. The, uh, the nihilist. Yeah. The <laughs> Um The opening that we played for you is, yes, from L.A. Noir, the video game, um, which I have a bone to pick with it. I, I loved it, so... I, I, I did... Some of the most difficult achievements first, then decided that I wanted to go back and replay a mission and found out that, yep, I saved over my save that had 100% cars in it. So <laughs> that's why I'm a little pissy about L.A. Noir. But um, the the noir soundtrack that we used is kind of appropriate. It's, it's not... We're not covering an American noir. For this for this piece, but what we are covering is a noir of sorts. It's what we can consider sort of a Japanese noir film. Yeah, it's got like a. It has those elements. It has, to it. I wouldn't call it like a. Strictly, it's not. A, it's not a straight up noir, noir film. No, no, no. But it does have the elements that you would consider a noir film. Um, it has the the promise of a femme fatale that doesn't really Pay happen. Off, yeah. Um, and, you know, it, and then, it, you know, it has all of those elements, black, you know, black and white, not that that's specifically noir, but traditionally, it, it adds to the atmosphere. It adds to the atmosphere. Um, and of course, I, I know most of you know what I'm talking about <laughs> with those vague, those vague, uh, uh, Illusions, but uh, Casablanca. Yeah. <laughs> no, we're talking about 1958's. Uh, Voice Without a Shadow, a Japanese film uh, directed by Seijun Suzuki. Uh, I think I'm saying that correctly, right? I mean... Close enough. I think I'm close yeah. enough. I, I don't think that he'd be offended by the, <laughs> the pronunciation, it, you know. Um, but, of course, uh, when a, a, a famous director within Japanese... Yes, yes, I see that. <laughs> a famous director within uh, the Japanese... Uh, Wait, pause that. Style of film. Suzuki uh, worked on, you know, Yakuza films a, a lot within the 60s. Um, Tokyo Drifter being one of one of the most well-known ones that he had, had had completed, along with Branded to Kill, which I think has been one of a, a, a bigger film for him as well. Mm. Um, but also, we kind of found out that he also worked on Lupin the Third for a little while. Uh, not only... The Gold of Babylon, or Babylon, the Golden Legend of the Golden, the Legend Babylon. of the Golden Babylon, but also the third series. Uh, apparently, a, a little bit of work. I mean, I don't know how much work he actually did on that, but um, yeah, I don't really know how much work he did on the yeah the movie itself. But but yeah, uh, we did re- you know researching um, Suzuki. That was kind of an interesting tidbit that we found about yeah. out about him. Didn't know that, um, and. Thinking about, I mean, you've seen Legend of the Golden Babylon. I have not seen it. I I don't know anything about it really. Uh, but you you say that it's it's pretty avant garde. It really doesn't make a whole lot of sense. No, it, it doesn't. It, but like the kind of s- style and like camera work that like kind of goes with the film is, well, I guess you would say is kind of like would be like a trademark of. His work, it's, you know, very... Yeah. Just, like, the way... She, and that's one of the things I was very impressed... Because this is my first uh, 
film that I've well besides Babylon, which I didn't actually didn't know beforehand because kind of keeping track of like all the people who worked on Lupin is uh yeah is, is a lot is a lot with all the movies they've done over the years, but I never knew he worked on those films. But like from watching this film and kind of thinking back now to that, like yeah, the camera work is kind of even though it's an animated film mm-hmm. is you know very kind of striking and similar and, and interesting too. Uh, I think that's when we talk about the film. Uh, Voice Without a Shadow, I think that's one of the kind of the more interesting things for, about the film to me, is just the camera work overall. Definitely, yeah, I, I think that's something that we'll, we'll get into a little bit more later on. Um, so, Voice Without a Shadow, coming soon uh, to your ears as we talk about <laughs> it. But first, we're going to talk about what we're drinking uh, as we, you know, as we watch the movie and as we talk through this podcast. Uh, first off, we kind of started with beer, um, and I want to kind of go into detail. I just had my wisdom teeth out, so <laughs> really I've been staying away from alcohol for a little bit because it, it tends to make pain a little bit worse, even though you would think, you know, it would make it a little <laughs> bit, it would numb the pain. It really doesn't work like that. Uh, uh, my dentist, when I got my wisdom teeth pulled out, told me to, uh, Rub brandy into my gums like a baby. Like well, I'm sure that would, I'm sure that would help in a way because it's gonna the brandy itself is gonna numb your gums. But as you consume it and it goes into your bloodstream, it's really not that good for the the swelling of your of your gums. So, um, but so I've been staying away from it. But today I did actually uh, partake in a little bit more and. Uh, Without much problem, I would say. Uh, first, we started off with beer because we uh, I ate dinner. Martin had already eaten most, so uh, I had pierogies. If anybody's wondering, uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so we started off with I have like three packs that like I'm alternating with it right now for for all of the uh, different beer Mis- packs Mr. that are out fancy, right now. Uh, yeah, Mr. yeah, fancy you know, I try to vary it up. Uh, we go to Hannaford like once or twice a week, so. Uh, <laughs> You know, I try to vary it up uh, with anything that's on sale, basically. $13.99 <laughs> is where I like to... It's $13.99. Which is a good like, deal if it's $14.99. Yeah, wow, yeah. that's like outrageous. Well, after you add tax and deposit. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It's I mean, like it does 18, add up. 18 yeah. plus dollars. Yeah. That's why, you know, even being the craft beer drinker that I am, when I buy beer, I stick to Jenny Cream Ale because it's cheap and, yeah. and I enjoy it and does the job. And the machines, bottle machines, take it back. When you buy uh, when you yeah, buy craft yeah. beer, you can never know. You might have bought it from that facility, I know, but, they but they're not going to take it back. Well, from you it. know what's funny in college? Um, anytime I'd buy a Labatt, in which I'd always get it, like Price Chopper too, it wouldn't ever take it back. It would never. T- you'd be sitting there forever trying to shove it and spit it right back out. I'd be like, I bought this here. Why do I have to go to the counter? And be like, yeah, yeah, you know, it's ridiculous because the counter guy is probably getting used to me because I'm always coming in with like t- like bags of beer bottles just trading them in like i've got 30 this time <laughs> you know so but uh yeah i'm all t- i i think the the last time we were on the podcast did i have otter no i didn't have otter creek at that time that was a month ago i can't remember yeah we, that was a long time ago no was i think it the i salted caramel porter yeah i think it was actually yeah we it's been a while since we've been we've done our last podcast we've been busy uh i've been busy uh, just every night so we haven't really had a chance to to do it but um yeah so i've been alternating with uh, three different packs right now i've got otter creek which i have their winter pack still um i've got uh goose yeah goose island uh i have their winter pack as well you still have some long trails 
Oh, that's, yeah, yeah, I do. I do still have some Lauren Trails as well. And then I have, um, uh, Saranac, which uh, they, they actually have their spring pack out right now. Um, probably driving Martin to an aneurysm since it's only the end of January. It's, it's, yeah, it's upsetting. It's a little, little early for the spring pack, but I feel like w- winter's barely kicked. I mean, Snowmageddon just happened down and, you know. That's true. DC and it whatnot. Yeah. Everyone all sad about. We didn't two, get it. Two feet of snow. Boo hoo. We didn't get it. I was I hoping for it. Yeah, to be honest. Well, with you. I was. T- I was kind of too, but I was like hoping it would be after my w- the weekend because if I got hit with it at work, we'd probably go on lockdown and I'd be stuck there for, you know. They don't want that. No, I don't want to be stuck at work. You don't want to be stuck at work. No, They'll just find more things for you to do. No, yeah. sweep the floor again. Yeah, yeah. But um, yeah, we didn't get hit with that, but. Well, so yeah, it's, it's been a very mild winter. It's been very mild. It's almost February, and I would say we've gotten like what five inches all less, together, less than a foot of snow. Yeah, it's uh, um, yeah. it's that's that's crazy. I mean, I'm I'm thinking we're still gonna get hit in February because we always do. <sighs> we always get hit in February. And if not, that's then, that, and if not then March. Yeah, right or March. <laughs> I mean, I, I I'm I've got I've got to be I'm, I'm honestly I'm hoping for it because I I do love snowstorms I I really do I actually like revving up my getting my snowblower mm-hmm. out and there you go I think I've only brought it out one time this year so I've shoveled a couple times you know when the asshole plowman comes through and just <laughs> throws the snow into your driveway but but the snowblower has only come out one time this year I would save on gas I guess but the gas is fucking cheaper now yeah dollar eighty nine or something like thanks, that thanks Barack yeah thanks Barack. <laughs> Um, well, anywho, yeah, um, it's been a while, so we had, uh, today, we've, uh... Yeah, what did we, you, what we, did you have? I you had, had Otter Creek's Pale Ale, I yeah. think, right? That, what was it, like, is that like Ten Hills or something like yeah. that? Ten Hills Pale Ale? Which is pretty good, it, it, it's, uh, It's pretty hoppy for a pale ale. It's pretty hoppy for a pale ale, yep. Kind of, it is. It's, they, and I think in that pack, too, there's an IPA, too, yeah. and there's really very little I've, difference between I, them. I was... Uh, debating on which one because I think you still have an Otter Creek IPA. Left. I probably do. Yeah. And I was debating which one I was going to have. I'm like, you know, I'll go with the less hoppy one. And sure enough, and we, as we've said a thousand times before, it's you know, IPAs are becoming so hop to hell you can't really distinguish what the hell you're drinking. Nope. And it's, it's kind of the same thing with pale ales too. Like pale ales are becoming IPAs, and your IPA is becoming a double IPA. Yeah. yeah. That's much. why I want to name this year the year of the Scotch ale. Sam Adams. You're is, calling for it. I'm calling 2016 the year of the Scotch Ale because Sam Adams this year put um, in their new spring pack, which is out too. Scotch Ale. Uh, yep. One of the beers they put in there is their Scotch Ale, and it is fantastic, and it should be year, a year-round offering. I haven't had that one yet. It is multi-deliciousness. It's very good. It's multi. It's uh, got a nice bitter sweetness to it. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, it's... Kind of, kind of like a wee heavy too, um, but it's very good. Not only do they have it in their uh, that in their pack, they also have a an ESB, uh, ESB, which is very good too. Which is a very underrepresented <laughs> beer. It is, yeah, because and it's underrepresented because a lot of um, you know beer manufacturers they don't make it correctly. And mm. ESB <clears throat> is not just an IPA. It's not which, just a pale ale, right? It's not just a pale ale. Which you get a lot because you get like they're just hopped up real you know, really heavily. But they're somewhere in between. They're like a mm. they're like a, a pale ale and a malty, 
you know, they're like a, like together. A, like, like a red or brown. Yeah. 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 They're, they're definitely, there's definitely like a fine line between them. And you can tell when you get a really good one and you can tell when you get one that's just kind of like, well, you know, they kind of just made it into a pale ale. Yeah. And that was, um, which is funny cause I was reading like, uh, fucking Yahoo article like a month ago. And it was about like uh, different people just sit like uh, with like, different expertises on beer, and they were saying like, "What's like you know an underrated type of beer?" And like you had some asshole saying like, "Well, I think Budweiser's underrated because they're getting all this you know crap heat for not being a craft beer, but you know they're they're very underrated for what they do." And one of the guys that actually wrote something on there said ESPs, which which you know was, was smart guy, which was nice because you know he's smart like guy. you know you, he goes you think with. All the love IPAs get in America these days, and like being the big push for craft brewers, you know, ESBs would be a perfect type of beer for people to try because it's I that agree. middle, it's that middle ground between a pale ale and IPA and kind of like a brown or red ale. And you know, like I, I said, agree. nobody really makes them. I agree. I, I, you know, I think that they do need to come out with more of them. Um, but. Yeah, I mean, I think that they would cater more towards people who are not looking for, like, hop-to-shit beers. And then also people who like the maltier stuff. So yeah. so you're going to get yeah. both of those crowds. Um, today, I had a long trail sick day, which I think I've talked about on here before. Because I had the long trail. I think you had the double bag last time. Maybe a double bag. Well, the sick sick day is a hoppier beer as well. It's, it, it's somewhere in between like pale ale and like a brown ale. I, I honestly think it's another alt beer, if I'm not mistaken. Mm. Um, so it's like you know, it's a, like in between. Actually, I wouldn't really call it. A, I think I'm. I, I said brown ale, but I think I mean more. It's more of like a pale slash red ale is what I want to say. Um, so I had that one first, and then I had the. Um, the Saranac Irish Red Ale, which is really good, although I had just had a chocolate penguin that has peppermint in it before that, so... Didn't pair quite well. It didn't pair quite well. It honestly tasted like a pumpkin ale to me, which was really weird. <laughs> I didn't get that. No, I know you didn't get that, but it was really weird because of the way they just worked. Mm. It's kind of weird how, like, taste buds work together like that to kind of throw things mm. off, but... And so now, though, we're not... We're, we moved on from beer. We moved on to harder stuff. Yeah. This time, some, we're drinking some uh, chest hair growers. Yeah. This is... I need that. Yeah. <laughs> I, I do. Um, this time, we're drinking uh, rye whiskey. And this is a local batch. This is uh, the... I would call it probably like mid to top shelf. It's it's a, it's a pretty expensive batch. Uh, it, this is Hudson. Um, it's a it's a rye Manhattan whiskey. And... Um, I really like it. It's not the same type of rye whiskey that you normally get. It's definitely vanilla-based. There's a lot of vanilla to it. Um, I think it's really good. I don't know what you thought. I know you. I, I enjoyed it. You do? Yeah. It's gone. You can never tell what Martin thinks about whiskey because he's always grimacing through <laughs> the swallow. So it's always hard to tell. It you always know. looks like I don't enjoy it's it. That's right. But, it's but, right. It really does. But, but, I, but I do. I, it's just... I got one of those faces that's like you know re- with like resting bitch face, like yeah. that, which I have a problem with too. When it comes to like whiskeys, it looks like I'm drinking it's like, like a horse, face, like yeah. horse piss. But yeah, deep down, it's like yeah, that's good. It's, yeah. Yeah. and no, I I like it a lot. We, you know, uh, we, I, as we've said before, we're both really big fans of rye whiskey. It's uh, 
I, I mean, I like it a lot. I mean, the only reason I never buy whiskey as much is just because I can't ever convince myself to spend as much money on a bottle. Yeah. Even though you get more mileage out That's of it, true. but I mean. If you ever go out, get a Rye Manhattan. It's really good. Rye Manhattan. Really good. Are good. Really good. Uh, that's, you know, I, I used to order a lot of, like, whiskey sours, but I'm really, I'm moving into, like, I really like the Rye Manhattan flavor now. Well, Rye's got that nice, uh, you know, that nice spice to it. It does, yeah. And, you know, which is why, like, a Rye IPA is, like, a beautiful thing. Like, that's, a, I'll never get, like, like when we talk about, like, getting sick of IPAs, a Rye IPA, I don't think I'll ever get sick of because it's, Those uh, are delicious. You know, they've got that, just, they've got that nice, different taste to it that really distinguishes yeah. it from an IPA, so. Um, old Fashions, I've tried. Haven't had one yet. I, they're not, I don't get it. If you want an Old Fashioned, just get your whiskey and add water to it. I, I just don't really understand it myself. Like, normally, I, if I'm going to go for just, if I want whiskey, I'm, I'm either going to order it straight or in a Manhattan. I'm not going to go for an old-fashioned and put some sugar water in it. Because that just kind of dilutes it for me. And it kind of defeats the purpose of me having, like, whiskey. Well, I think it's because so it's diluted so you can, you know, enjoy more of it. So you're not, I don't know. So you're not, yeah. like me, gr- I, I, grimacing. Yeah. I mean, I guess if, you're, if you don't love the taste of, like, just harsh on your palate whiskey then an old fashioned would be the way to go but I mean I I've never just seems I'm, like a waste. I've never bothered I mean this might sound foolish or stupid but I've never bothered cutting whiskey with water. I or any or any I don't like it or I, or any hard liquor I've never cuz I just to me just like you said it, to me it just sounds like defeating the purpose like if I want to It does, yeah. drink I, a whiskey I want you know just because if I drink like a porter or something that I don't like I'm not going to pour water into it. Right, exactly. You know, yeah, I don't like to dilute it. I feel like it it just takes away from the experience. So I just don't do it. But I mean, I guess if that if that's something that you you know enjoy, I don't mean to take it away from you. So do you need more? Yeah, yeah. All right, All right. we'll get you some more. But yeah, definitely check out this Hudson Manhattan Rye whiskey. It's really good if it's in it, your area. If it's in your area, um, and also it's really difficult to get into. Really difficult. It's got wax on the on the. On the uh, bottle cap itself, which is a cap with a cork, um, but it was really difficult for me to get into it. I had to grab a knife and really hack away at it for a little while. So. Not as easy as Maker's Mark. No, no. So just keep that in mind when you're, you're getting it. Oh, and before we move on, I will say, a uh, week or two ago, I, I got a chance to try the Crown Royal Northern Harvest Rye, which was recently just named uh, the number one whiskey in the world of 2015. And I will say it was not bad. It was pretty good. Um, you haven't gotten a chance to try it. Which, like I said, you gotta try it. Um, it's not as heav- heavy on the rye, especially because it's a uh, it's a blend too. So it's mm-hmm. not full full on rye whiskey, but it's um, it's pretty good. It's, you know, it is more kind of like in, like a scotch, but that's because it's more of a Canadian whiskey. It's not like you know like a bourbon style. That you would get over in you know in the yeah. U.S., but you know, it's definitely worth trying. It's mm. uh, I mean I haven't drank enough whiskeys you know to be able to sit here and be like this is the best whiskey you know right. around. Yeah. But, but it's definitely you know especially for its price point it's you yeah. know like only yeah. thirty some yeah. only thirty some odd dollars for a seven hundred fifty milliliter bottle which is. I wonder if my uh, my uncle Bob would like it because I know he likes Canadian whiskey. Well, he likes 
He likes yeah. Black Velvet. Which is the devil, Canadian club, the devil, Canadian mist, the devil. Yeah, he loves Canadian mist, too. Oh, yeah. my lord. Oh, yeah. No, thank you. That's why... That's why I tried to drink that straight one time. They had it at a Christmas party. I was like, sure, I'll have some Canadian... I guess I'll have some Canadian mist. That's all they had for whiskey. So I tried to drink it straight, and I was like, Jesus Christ. I can't. I think it was Canadian Club. I tried in college, like straight, and I was like throwing up, like in, as soon as it hit my tongue. And that's why, even, like, I know Crown Royal is kind of is is a better quality whiskey. Um, just the sound of anything Canadian makes you know, just shudder in agony because it's just the de- the devil's water. Yep. Ugh. So if you enjoy that kind of stuff, like. Canadian Club and Canadian Mist and Dr. McGillicuddy's got God, <laughs> God bless you. That's right. All right, well, I guess we should get into Voice Without a Shadow now. Um, the Voice Without a Shadow that we watched was on uh, Arrow Videos Nikatsu Diamond Guys Volume One, which is a Blu-ray that they just released on Tuesday. It has three different films in it. Um, it has uh, obviously Voice Without a Shadow. It's also got Red Pier and um, the Rambling Guitar. I think the, the, I'm sorry, I said that wrong. The Rambling Guitarist, um, which is they're all directed by kind of these you know, the prominent directors that worked with Nikatsu, which was a releasing company. Um, and you know, Nikatsu they released a lot of different stuff. They released Yakuza films. They released um, samurai films um, and. And some of the other ones, like the the Baka Neko, which would, black, you know, the, with the, the cat, you know, um, they released those, and then they moved into porn. So <laughs> um, they found out what really sold, and they went for it. So, um, but yeah, Nikatsu Diamond Guys is uh, uh, actually a really awesome Blu-ray that uh, that Arrow has released, um, and the version that we watched was really good quality. Um, Great quality. Obviously, like Voice Without a Shadow from 1958 is in black and white, and um, what you're going to get is a, a, f- a footage that obviously it's going to you know it's going to have some flaws in it. You're you're going to get some cigarette burns. You're going to get some you know little tears in the film. It's from 1958, guys. I mean, even if they got it from the master, there's going to be some 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 problems with the with the film itself. But um, for the most part, you know the film quality is really good. A lot of times you'll notice with um, like transfers of black and white films that you get a lot of um, uh, like lighting issues. You'll get like a lot of um, like fading back and forth between like light and dark. And this is really like a nice solid color the whole time. Solid, um, I would say on the darker spectrum of color, uh, a lot of the time, you know, when it outside shots are kind of darker, mm-hmm. um, inside shots are actually really well lit, but, uh, uh, really they did a really good job, uh, as arrow video always does. Um, we've reviewed one in the past. Day of anger was an arrow video release and they really do a good job with all of their releases and really load their, their extras on, on the disc, so, uh, definitely check that out, um, but, uh, we're not really here to talk about the Arrow video release of it, uh, we're, we're really focusing on Voice Without a Shadow. Uh, I was to say, the only, the only complaint I would have with that, which you're right, the quality is superb, uh, the only complaint I would have is the choice of the font for the subtitles, which 
sometimes because the font isn't all white font. It's a white font, yeah. So with sometimes the background and the drops, uh, it makes it pretty hard to read what's going on. So unless you're fluent in Japanese, uh, some of the parts might be kind of hard to read. You know, I think, honestly, that you remember they used to do subtitles in yellow. Yeah. And I think there was an issue with how that transferred onto film. And I with think like that's the new, why they the don't Blu-rays. do yellow anymore. Uh, uh, I'm not really, you know, I don't, I don't know. I don't follow technology like that with like film technology. I, I don't mm-hmm. follow that stuff. Um, but I believe there was some issue with the yellow font, and that's why they changed it to the white font. So I mean, and I think that's it, thinking back on the Arrow video releases that I have watched. Um, they generally use the white the font. font. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, but anyway, so, uh, Voice Without a Shadow for 1958, obviously we talked about it, uh, directed by Seijun Suzuki. Um, we mentioned before, uh, that it's sort of a noir film, but it's also taking a lot of cues from what we've said when we said when we watched it, uh, Hitchcock. Definitely we noticed, like, right in the beginning, uh, because there's a, a moment where, uh, a scene which takes place three years before the events of what then takes place within Voice Without a Shadow. Um, there's a uh, phone operator um, that receives, or actually accidentally dials a phone number and uh, gets a voice on the phone that says this is a crematory, uh, a crematory um, and really stumbles upon uh, the murder scene mm-hmm. um, and talks to the murderers themselves when she's on the phone. Uh, and that really reminded us of Dial M for Murder, uh, which came out in, what, what did we say, 1953? Is that what I said? 50, 53 or 54. 53 or 54. Uh, so, y- taking into consideration uh, exportation, uh, which generally takes a little while, especially with uh, films from America heading overseas, um, that would put it right around uh, the time when Voice Without a Shadow you know, was going to be coming out. I think it was probably safe to say that that was something of an inspiration. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, Hitchcock himself was probably an inspiration. Um, very big at the time. Very, know. very big at the time in the in the fifties. Um, so that that was uh, something that we we definitely noticed right off the bat is that there, there's a, a Hitchcock influence. Um, maybe not as intricate as a Hitchcock film. No. Um, but definitely has the same sort of mystery styling. Um, and, and, and again, like we said, uh, a noir style that kind of creeps in, which would have been big, mostly in the forties, but also you know, still, 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 you still know. prominent within the fifties. Um, that kind of comes up within voice for the shadow. And, uh, the, one of the most interesting things that I noticed about the film is that in the beginning, there's the narration aspect of it, which is is told by the reporter that then comes into Voice Without a Shadow and investigates uh, the murder that occurs um, with Hamazaki, who is like a, a, a crime boss within this area of, of Japan. Um, the narration really drops out after that first, you know, I, I would say 10 minutes, mm-hmm. uh, which I thought was interesting because... To be honest with you, that narration is unnecessary. Um, it tells us things that, as we move on, you know, we know about. And I, I think that was one of the flaws that I really picked up on, is that 
they're, you know, it seems like Suzuki's trying to sell that narration at first, and then it really drops out, and, you know, we kind of pick up with the narrator himself, who is the reporter, mm-hmm. and um, we kind of just see from his perspective as he works the case. Um, so I, I thought that was interesting. You know, that's that's where, you know, Noir has a narration mm-hmm. bit that kind of runs throughout the, throughout the, uh, the sequence, and, and in this one... We get it at first, and then it kind of drops out. And, and you're right; it's not really totally necessary because for the mo- he is the, the, the reporter is the main character of the film. It's mainly we're watching everything through his eyes and what he experiences. Uh, you know, right, he's basically in the film like eighty percent of it. So yeah, you don't really need any narration over the scenes. You know, yeah, I thought that was you know that was a, a, an interesting thing that Suzuki chose, and it, it kind of drops out and. Uh, I just don't see the need for it at the beginning of the film. Um, but what we do see within is Suzuki... Uh, I mean, I guess I would say this is one of Suzuki's earlier films. I think maybe this is like number eight in his uh, his uh, film sequence. And on the surrealism spectrum, this is really, I would say, nuanced. It's not super surreal. Obviously, Suzuki is not... I would say his scenes are fluid. They really move into each other without much exposition, without much explanation uh, between each of the scenes. And it, there's kind of like some some moments left unsaid. As, as uh, I was going to say, the only like really kind of surreal parts of the film is where it kind of goes from one scene and then kind of without real transition goes to, like, a scene that's t- supposed to take place back in time. Previously. That yeah, right. happened, that, like, kind of explains how the crime scene happened. It's, yeah. You know, there's no real transition between what's going on in the present and then this cockpit flashback to the past. You know, there's... Right. You know, you have to be kind of paying attention yeah. to know that, oh, this is now, we're back in the past, and then, like, oh, now we're back at the present. doesn't happen often, but it... A couple times, yeah. yeah I mean, a couple key instances where that flashback occurs and it's prompted. I mean, it's, it's not prompted. It's, mm-hmm. it kind of just happens and you know, you go with it. Um, there's that. And then there's a dream sequence with Asako, who is our, um, main female, main lead. female character who has heard the killer on the phone with, uh, in <clears throat> that first murder. And then also is kind of, um, the wife of a suspected murderer in this new case where Hamazaki has been killed. Um, so those are the two real surreal aspects of this film, but otherwise it's pretty straightforward. Like I said, there's the, um, the fluid aspect of sometimes you're moving into a scene and some of it has been left unsaid and you're, you're kind of picking up on what happened within the, the cut. Mm-hmm. Uh, as they go along with their their investigation, but um, so that I mean that in itself makes Voice Without a Shadow kind of an interesting film to watch. Uh, I would say that contemporary viewers um, are going to realize that the the murder itself ha- has a setup to it. So. Uh, I, I don't think it's a really a spoiler to say that Asuko's husband has been set up for this murder. Mm-hmm. And it, it, for like I said, for contemporary viewers, that's pretty much 
a given. Um, things have happened. Um, he's been found with coal in his pants. Um, he yeah, blacked out and got in a fight with the, uh, Hamazaki before he died. Um, all of those things kind of come together and to the, the film, it's, uh, characters, it kind of signals that, you know, that he's the murderer, mm-hmm. but to, I, and I don't know, I, I don't want to say that, you know, audiences in 1958 wouldn't have suspected that it was a, somebody else. Yeah. That it was somebody else, uh, as well, but to contemporary audiences who have seen, you know, numerous crime films throughout the years that, and even TV shows like CSI who, you know, they do the same things. They yeah. set up so know, yeah, somebody yeah, else to yeah. look like the, the, the murderer. There's always a, like, like, it's like, and I was wrong when I guessed this, but I, you know, from watching like a lot of different like crime films and, uh, and TV shows and kind of, I don't know, not bragging or anything, kind of having a good track record on guessing what's going to happen. Mm-hmm. I suspect, you know, I'm like, oh, it's probably As- Asako that, you know, did it. Cause, yeah, the wife. Because yeah. kind of coming from a contemporary uh, view, viewer uh, viewpoint, you you know, that'd be like the cliche thing to do. Like, oh, I'm the, you know, innocent. My husband's innocent. And then yeah. you come to find out, yeah, no, it was her all along, you, you know, yep. trying to protect him or something like yeah. that. But, uh, you know, thankfully... That's not even the case. No, that's that's um, you know. It, it, and actually, the the way it all pl- pans out, I mean, yeah, there's a lot of suspects, but from kind of watching it, there's not really one person you can pinpoint and say like, you, oh, this is the person who did that. There isn't yeah. no, um, which is kind of uh, a disappointing aspect to a voice without a shadow. That really the the film doesn't give the viewer too much information about any one person that they can actually decide is the killer. Um, the end result happens to be the people that were closest to Hamazaki. And we don't really have that insight when we're watching the film. Um, the evidence that the journalist keeps going over with like each of the people that he keeps you know, interrogating and asking the questions is... All the little the evidence you get is very very minimal. It's it is. There's not anything that's like you can point out like that's very glaring that would lead you into it, yeah. one specific direction either way, whether it be one person or another or the husband. Everything that you get shown and told is very minimal. It's yeah, not really anything that you the viewer can kind of build off of to make your own assumptions on who could possibly have committed the crime. Not really. I mean, the the film does give a lot of different suspects, and it does give a lot of information about certain things. So um, I think it requires, you know, quite a bit of, of patience and uh, dedication with the viewer. I mean, it is a slow burn film. Even even at an hour and a half, it is a very slow pace. It's a slow pace, and it's very. And if you're not the kind of person who likes dialogue driven films, yeah, you will not like this film. It no. is, is very very dialogue heavy. It's rely. You know, everything is basically kind of relied on either exposition or the interactions between 
the characters. The characters, yeah. I mean, definitely a lot of interviews that take place um, with our reporter, Ishikawa, and, you know, the, the various suspects that he comes across. Um, the one thing that's kind of mind-blowing is that it's up to Ishikawa, some newspaper reporter, to uncover the real case in, in Voice Without a Shadow. Mm-hmm. You know, the detectives that really should be doing this work are, you know, out in the bar. You know, I guess they're... They're They're happy to say, like, yeah, it was... was Sure, it was was the the husband because it has a really easy wrap-up and that's it. You know, I... Which is a very cynical kind of view of, uh... Of detective work, and but which but kind of fits, you know, especially today now is like, well, we got to go out and keep our crime rate, you know, at a certain level. And just, it's not, and it's not said, but like just kind of thinking yeah. about it, it's like, it was like, well, crime solved, let's move on. Exactly. I mean, I, I don't know if Suzuki really was intentionally calling out like detective work or not. I think it was more of a, you know, a, a focus on a newspaper reporter because that's interesting. And, um, there's various loopholes with detective work. I think that, you know, if you have certain, a reporter, c- certain, certain, things certain detect- circumstances wouldn't occur yeah. within the film if it was a detective. Uh, I think that's really the reason why it was a reporter instead of a detective. Um, but at the same time, I mean, it does draw those parallels to like, you know, poor detective work and, and, uh. I, mean, I, I just why criminals. I, know, I just I just find it funny because it seems like today, especially with today's journalism, you would never see like uh, a journalist today like, oh, this case is kind of close. The well, what could be the truth behind it? Be kind of like, okay, yeah, let's see your your side. Let's see your side. Okay, and that's the story. That, you know, it's that. Yep. You know, there's no nope. real investigation kind of going on. So, I think we can blame it on Mahjong. I really do. <laughs> Mahjong is really the reason why this all occurs. Um, and probably it's because no one really knows how to play it. <laughs> well, at least us. Yeah, we, we don't. But uh, um, So I think there's a, a couple different uh, things that we can talk about here in terms of, you know, what makes this an interesting film... One that we should remember, because, I mean, Voice of that Shadow from 1958, I, I don't really think that most people have either seen or know about it uh, within, in America. Yeah. I mean, Arrow Video is obviously bringing it to us, for one thing, because they work with a lot of Nakatsu films. Um, mm. Like I said, the Bakaneko, they've, they've brought a, a few of those to uh, American shorts, but also because they think that it's uh, kind of a like a... A gem and in, in within the the murder mystery films of the Japanese cinema. Um, I mean, what do you think? Do you, do you think that Voice Without a Shadow is a film that's really worth contemporary viewers going back to? Yeah, I, like I, I think um, the most striking thing, like I said earlier, about the film is its camera work. I think the cinematography in the film is a uh, actually pretty damn good. It's fantastic and. There's, there's always there's always been something about kind of the fifties sixties style cinematography, whether it be kind of a noir film or like a big budget epic film like Lawrence of Arabia. That's always kind of struck my like struck my eye and like how 
everything is shot and and today it kind of just makes me reflect looking back on those films and seeing how every shot to me it seems like they have a purpose like how it has to be set up how the camera moves and it just adds more presence to it where today where there's so much cgi involved and constant things being done on computer with the camera that just kind of take you out of the film that become jarring Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the same thing, like editing techniques too, of the time, like of like the fifties and today. Like, well, yeah, I mean, there's yeah. not a lot. Of, there's not a lot of editing within Voice of a Shadow. No, it, there's a lot of long, you know, long, long, shot, long, long shots takes. and long takes. And like it, with a film like this, that builds up the atmosphere and tension of having these long takes of people having these conversations and the camera kind of moving within the scene instead of having you know certain cuts every three seconds. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that one of the, the really interesting things about their shots is that when you're seeing like a conversation take place, it's not the, the normal one person shot here, shot, one person yeah, yeah. here and you're equally equidistant from them or, you know, shot, you know, yeah. shot over the shoulder. I you think, know. yeah. Like with Ishikawa and Asako conversing at a table. You're having um, a camera angle that's more, it's it's off-center, and it favors Ishikawa rather than Asako. And I think that's intentional because you're meant to distrust Asako. Mm-hmm. You're really, you really are. Um, all of the characters do. Yeah. They, they distrust that not only could she, you know, realize that her, her husband didn't do the murder, but, but how- that she could pick out over 300 voices on a phone and know the correct word. Yeah, and remember, yeah, uh, the killer's voice from three right. years ago. Yeah. So you're meant to distrust Asako, yeah. and and um, I think that in itself is really interesting to how they decided to shoot that, because yes, you are kind of looking from Ishikawa's perspective over to Asako. You're not favored... Mm-hmm. You're not favoring Asako at all. Yeah. Um, so that, that is a, a nice, a different kind of take on the normal conversational dialogue that you would you would see in a contemporary film. Um, uh, at you know, and and the other thing is, um, a lot of these scenes don't have that kind of over the shoulder. I, I yeah. don't think it actually no, occurs it, at all. No, I, I, I don't think so. And so you're getting kind of like more of an airy atmosphere of like everyone's involved in this conversation. And, you know, again, you're not getting close to any of those characters besides Ishikawa. You know, it's leaving everyone open to a suspect. suspect. The other thing that I, I thought was pretty cool was that I really did not see the ending of the film coming. The real reveal of the mastermind behind the whole, the whole murder. Mm-hmm. Um, because you have the people who committed the murder, and then you have someone who actually was behind the whole thing, who came up with the idea, mm-hmm. who set it in motion, um, and who actually was linked to the, basically the voice without a shadow that was on the mm-hmm. phone three years ago. Mm-hmm. Um, I did not see it coming. And I feel like the film hit it pretty well. Um, again, I think that we don't have enough information to really draw a conclusion as to who it would have been. Um, well, yeah, I think that's kind of how, like, I'm, 
as you said, I think that's kind of one of the flaws, is, you know, for, like, a murder mystery, you want the story and the director to give you enough to kind of start making guesses, but not too much to, like, you know, where it's right. like, oh, it's obviously... You can the, know who it is. Yeah. Um, but in this one, like I said, there's not so much given to you, so at the end when you finally get the reveal of who it was, you're just kind of like, you're, you're underwhelmed. You're like, yeah. oh. But I th- That's it? <laughs> yeah, and I think that at the end of it, there is that sort of narrative bit that tells you exactly how it occurred. Which they do bring the narrative in. Yeah, they, they do, do that, bring that back. It tells you exactly what happened and how it occurred and why it's specifically this person, um, which kind of comes out of left field because we don't get any of that when the actual conclusion occurs. We're given that after the fact, after the person is arrested, but how it comes to be, how you know Ishikawa knows that this is the person mm-hmm. is left up to imagination. I mean, he tells us it's exposition in the wrong spot. You want yeah. to show you, you want to know, yeah. You, sh- you show like him doing those things. Like it would have been nice, like because after that character has like a conversation with Ishikawa about what he was doing that night and all that would, you know. To get, like, you know, when he has that conversation, you might not show him, like, having a phone call with the person, like, hey, so, you know, they're questioning us. But then later in the film, when you had that reveal, you can have, you know, have yeah. something like that to add to add to the subtext of the film, basically. It, yeah, I mean, it's kind of like an afterthought wrap-up. It's like, you know, we're nearing 90 like, minutes. Yeah, like, shit, we, you know, we've right, got to, yeah. you know, we've got to kind of explain this, because... Uh, and, I mean, I liked... The explanation of the actual killer, or the, I mean, the the person who set this all up. I mean, I, I thought that that was, you know, it made sense, and we we had, you know, we had the motive. But I, yeah, I don't think that we were given enough to actually know who could have done it. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, I, I guess that's something that we come to we kind of hope for from a murder mystery and it's, it's not an ingrained rule. I mean, it doesn't have to be the person that, you know, it doesn't have to be anybody that we could suspect, but then it feels like the audience isn't involved. Um, they're just kind of like pulled along. It's a deus ex machina Yeah. that, you know, you can just pull in anywhere, you know, it's the gardener. <laughs> you didn't even see the gardener, you know, that I, in, in this case, that's not, that's not, the full picture because we do interview this person yeah. and we do, you know, we do talk to them at least he's in the film, yeah. but you, we're not given that information. We're not privy to whatever Ishikawa knows because we just, we don't have all of the information that we need to, to make that decision. So I think like, uh, a good contemporary kind of film that kind of gets the leading, Leading people one way, but actually kind of bait and switching and also like having a good enough explanation at the end to make everything make sense and be like, wow, that's a great, you know, that was kind of fucking brilliant. And it's kind of cliche of me to say this, but I think the usual suspects when you look to kind of a Mm -hmm. film that does the whole trying to figure out who did something or who the certain person is. That's, like, you know, the way they did it was very clever. Sorry, I thought you were going to say the number 33. 
You mean 23? 23. Yeah, Number yeah. 23. Tops the secrets. Yes. <laughs> I thought you were going to say that. No. I'm no, just kidding. No. I, I but, I think, <laughs> you know, uh, I can't remember if you... Have you seen The Usual Suspects? Or? Yeah. Yeah, so... But, you know, like, you... So you've seen it, so you know, like, how, like, the film throughout the entire thing is, you know, there's certain questions, certain evidence leading to ask, like, well... Is Kaiser Soze this person? Is it this person? Is it this person? Yeah. And then at the end, when you think, like, everything's all figured out, and then it's really not, and then you get that twist. I mean, the twist is kind of, you know... Yeah. Um, not... I mean, the twist is what makes the film great, but uh, um, not saying this film needed to have a twist, but what I'm saying, like... Just, yeah. like, you know, like, the fact that when they had that twist and you see, like, every, how everything just clicks and makes sense, that everything that was basically there for you to kind of get, but it's stuff that most people wouldn't look at, you know, makes it kind of a great mystery. Yeah. Where, like, this film is the opposite. There's not, like, anything really given to you to kind of draw your own conclusions. You just kind of have to sit there patiently, go along for the ride, and just, you know, kind of ex- kind of accept the ending. Just like, oh, okay. I mean, that sounds derogatory, but really, I enjoyed Voice Without a Shadow. No, and I'm not, yeah. I'm not saying it's a bad film. I mean, yeah. I I do enjoy, like, slower-paced films. Yeah. and Like I said, I think the atmosphere... I think with the atmosphere of the film, the cinematography... And the acting is really good in it, too. Yeah. And the score. I, I, I wanted to bring up the score, too. I did like the score a lot. Yeah. It, um, kind of like a... Uh, it's kind of... Like, I don't really know how to describe it, but um, it's kind of got a circus feel to it, but then also a very, like, suspenseful feel. And it kind of feels playful and at the same time suspenseful. And, and I thought that and was... ominous. Yeah, yeah, and ominous. And I thought that was really good. I thought the score was really good about this one, too. Um, but, yeah, I mean, like I said, uh, we don't... It's very difficult to create a murder mystery where the, the audience can know the person who did the killing and also know that, yes, okay, we had the evidence to support that that was presented to us in the film, but not realize who it was. So that's a very difficult thing. I mean, it's a fine line. I know, I know, I know, I know, that's, I know yeah. like I said, I know kind of using the usual suspects as kind of, you know, as like a comparison. Oh, yeah. Is, is, Cheating and damning because, like I said, it's kind yeah, of those, you get once that, it's a once in a lifetime. Once, yeah, you get that once every now and then sort of thing. But if the film gave you just a little bit more to, like, not like per se suspect the person who it ended up being, but like to kind of lead but you, focus on him because you only get yeah. it one one time really because you get yeah. one like interview with him and that's it. Yeah, and every but everything else when they Ishikawa was going around interviewing everybody, you're getting, like, some of their backstory, like, oh, he has an alibi, or he has, you know, this, so that's why he can't do it. The film is, I think, too busy spending time on saying it's Asako's husband that did this. Here's the evidence that backs it up. They don't give you any other evidence, really, to, you know, like like I said, like, yeah. there's not enough evidence to support why it could be possibly anybody else. And that's, I think, I think that's the major flaw in the film. But like you said, I don't think it's a bad film at all. I think it's actually a very good, it is a good film. Yeah. But I think if it gave you just, if it gave the audience just a little bit more towards certain characters on like, 
not like evidence, but like motive behind yeah. them or seeing them doing certain things that would make you suspect them, that would make the film more interesting. Yeah. And it would, I think, to a contemporary audience, would make it a more interesting film. Otherwise, right, it's just a kind of whodunit, and it's just one person interviewing constant separate people. It is, yeah. And, that, and I think that's what adds to, like, you know, it's a, it's a slow burn, and you should be ready for that when you're, you're watching it. I mean... You know, don't don't expect to be wowed at every turn. Um, so that's you know, and and I think that's the case with most of these Nikatsu films. I haven't seen Red Pier or The Rambling Guitarist, so I can't say for certain. But I, I'm gonna guess that from the 1950s with these murder mysteries, that they're more of a slow burn kind of. You know, you give it you're, you're patient, mm-hmm. and and it does pay off. Uh, it, Voice of the Shadow yeah. does pay off. Um, so definitely give it, give it a chance and, 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 you know, if you're open to it, it, it is rewarding. I, there's some films that, you know, Arrow Video has, has brought back, you know, that are kind of obscure and, and I've definitely never seen, um, that I, you know, they're part of cinematic history. Um, The Beast and, um, Immoral Tales being one of them that I can remember that I watched, um, that are part of cinematic history, and I, I just am like very underwhelmed by them. And Voice Without a Shadow is, you know, completely opposite. Like I'm glad to have watched it as part of film history, of as part of Japanese cinema, mm-hmm. um, which Japanese cinema is something that I'm really lacking in as a as a film genre, you know, as a as a style of film that I haven't watched very much of. Um, Getting these era era video releases is is really a great experience because I besides like kaiju films I don't know much about Japanese Japanese cinema yeah. uh, especially the historic cinema you know anime and stuff more versed in but you know, historic cinema in Japan I'm, I'm not really well versed in so these are great um, you know there's always some that you're you're kind of thinking like. Uh, you know, yeah, maybe this is historic cinema, but I'm not really a huge fan of it. Well, I was going to um, say, I don't think most people these days would watch Birth of a Nation. Yeah. And historic part of, you know, cinema, American cinema. Is, or Triumph of the Will, really, yeah. which I reviewed not too long ago. Yeah. I mean, those are things that people would kind of skip out on. And I would urge not to. I mean... Triumph of the Will is... I, I wouldn't say it's, like, a fun film to watch. It's not fun. It's not like you're watching and you're like, wow, I'm, like, so entertained by this. Because uh, it's mostly B-roll and historic, you know, um, speeches. But at the same time, very important to watch based on what's happening in history right now. So, that's all we'll say on that. Um, <laughs> due to politics, but... Um, I mean, like I said, I'm glad I watched Voice Without a Shadow. It's a very interesting film, kind of coming from a different perspective of, you know, we have Hitchcock in America. I mean, Hitchcock, huge murder mystery fan. But again, Voice Without a Shadow within Japanese cinema, kind of a noir style murder mystery. Um, very entertaining uh, to watch as long as you're open to a slow burn film, so... Um, based on one out of ten slanderous, uh, murder headlines, what would you give, uh, Voice of Asha? Uh, I'd probably give it a seven out of ten. Yeah, I was thinking about that, 
that too. I, I think I would probably give it a 7, 7.5 out of 10. Like uh, I said, it's good. I think the only thing that holds it back is the fact that it's not that it's a slow burn, but that they it doesn't give you enough to kind of, if you're not really paying attention, it's, yeah. you're going to be lost. Honestly, yeah, and honestly, like you said, I don't think there is even... There was a, a second, way there was to... about two minutes where I looked at my phone real quick, and yeah. I kind of looked up, and I was like, what the hell's going on now? Yeah. Like I said, that's part of the fluid movement of, you know, you're moving from one scene to another, and there's kind of that left unsaid between the scenes, <clears> you know, between the edits. Um, but at the same time, yeah, I, I don't think there's a way for for the viewer to kind of figure out the, the murder um, without having whatever Ishikawa knows that we don't. Mm-hmm. So, um, I would agree with you. 7, 7.5 would be somewhere around where I'd leave that. And, um, you know, honestly, that's that's a pretty good rating for, for a film from 1958 with uh, a genre that has been pretty much overloaded with murder, mystery kind of well, themes. You, you know, you see it today now, especially like all the law and orders and yeah. CSIs. I mean, everything has... NCIS, you... I, I mean, I don't watch any of that shit. I used to watch Law and Order, like, a lot, but I, like, sit and see, like, things, like, for NCIS. It's like, how are these people 15 years, like, how much crime is going on in the Navy where they have these, like, murder mysteries every other <laughs> I don't know how these people write these, because, like, how do you keep coming up with, like, new plots? I mean, yeah, you can use old plots and then like do them in, in different ways but i'm not i can't do that i can't keep coming up with the same idea over well, that's and over why and change them. Them. that's why they probably have a writer a team of writers of like 30, i know i 30 mean people to... i mean kudos to them because i definitely couldn't do it i mean i couldn't come up with like no this cockroach says that this didn't happen you know i just i can't i i can't imagine writing things like over and over again for like nine seasons well, like I like well, like I said, I uh, told told you earlier. I just finally started watching Dexter not that long ago, and I'm on to season seven now. And like by now, which I know a lot of people like Dexter, and I'm not gonna bash it like The Walking Dead. Um, yeah, but I mean, it's 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 enjoyable, but at the same time, it's kind of like it's the same shit kind of happening over and over again, yeah. but with a slightly different tweak and the same like kind of thing like things going on. And it's kind of like this. It's getting like boring. Well, I think that you're moving into the um the seasons where people really were not happy with the way Dexter was handled. I mean, well, yeah, cuz that's that's the thing. That's like one of the main critiques I have. It's like he is a fuck like, you know, he went from being like meticulous and all that and now just for no reason kind of like well, I gotta do this, and it's like, well, no, you wouldn't do this because this goes against like your code and whatnot. Yeah. Like, well, I gotta do it, and it's like you're doing stupid things to kind of further the plot. Yeah, I mean, I don't think it's any secret that the season, I mean, the last season and the season, the series finale are super disappointing. That most people were that's very all, disappointed. That's all in I hear. The so. series finale, like, uh, not. I mean, I don't want to ruin it for you. Um, but most people find that Dexter series finale is probably one of the worst finales ever. I mean, that, when when you talk about like how bad a series finale can go, they cite Dexter. So just keep that in mind when you're coming up well, to the series. That's, that's great because I'll be sitting there the entire time, probably going at the end like, well, break, we should just break, mic, we should break, just break, mic you and have that be a podcast episode. Like, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm just gonna be sitting there probably like, well. 
Well, Breaking Bad did this a thousand times better, because Breaking Bad ended perfectly. Yeah. And, well, the entire Breaking Bad series is perfect. I don't care what anybody says. Yeah. But. Uh, P.S. Um, Better Call Saul is going to be on <clears throat> Netflix on February 1st, yep. so you so. might as well watch that, because apparently, I've only seen the first episode, but apparently people say that it's way better than it even should be. That Better Call Saul is way better than anybody expected it to be because obviously it's a spin-off series of and people a, were thinking of a, like of well a, of a great series yeah. thing, you know. I mean people were thinking well this is gonna be half ass you know and people you know they're just spinning it off because people like Saul and it, they think it would be good for yeah, ratings. I, I don't but. think I mean um Vince Gilligan he's not I know he's not totally involved in it yeah, right? but, yeah. but he's probably got enough oversight and yeah. to kind of make Keep sure it on the right track yeah, yeah. And plus, and plus, AMC's got a pretty good track record of... They do. Besides The Walking Dead. Besides The <laughs> Walking Dead, Fear of The Walking Dead. They uh-huh. they would love to just sell The Walking Dead forever. <laughs> they will. Which they will, yeah. I mean, they As you will. said before, they, don't they already have like season 15 planned out? They That's what they said. They said they're going to keep it going. They're going to keep it going until you know right. Robert Kirkman ends his comic series. And probably even then they'll just beat it at horse until it runs into the ground. Yeah, but they're not even following the comics, though. Well, they are because Negan's going to be coming up in this next season. I know, but it's not, like it, I, I, it's not like it's completely following it, though. No, like, not completely. I mean, for God's sake! For God's sakes! I mean, yes, that show could last forever because it's the zombie apocalypse. So you could just find more and yeah. more scenarios to just keep changing. Yeah, and and besides, they're doing the same thing every season anyway. Well, they run into new people and they don't know how to deal with the situation, and they're like, "This guy died. Well, I don't know what to do. You got to fight back. I don't know if I can." And then they come to the revelation that they can. And then that person dies and they add somebody else that goes through the same crisis over and over again. Well, I mean, season 6B started pretty soon, so you might as well just tune in and well, see what's going on. I still haven't watched season 5 and season 6A. 6A. Yeah. So. But, um, yeah. So. I, I have no plans either. <laughs> Alright, well, we should probably wrap it up. We're, uh, we're, we're over an hour now, so. What do you think? You got anything to add? Just, I think it was a good movie, like I said. Yeah. Watch it. Check it out. Especially if you're into kind of noir mystery films of the 50s and you yep. kind of like slower burns. Yep. Uh, definitely, def- definitely, if you like slower burns, check it out. If not, if you're not very patient with your movies, you're not a fan of old-fashioned film, then you should probably skip it. And I was going to say kind of... Um, Going back to when you said about the restoration, if you're somebody who does not like black and white films, I think this film and its restoration kind of shows like black and white is fine. Yeah, like it's it's yeah. But I and, I, and it's, maybe it's just me personally, but I, there's something about like the black and white film too that I like. I appreciate That's nice to that, see. Yeah, that, yeah, like I appreciate it as an aesthetic and yeah. And you, I, I can I, I can accept I can accept it for you know especially like you know I can look at things kind of at the face value of the time period so mm-hmm. but, but definitely check it out um yeah i mean you can pick it up for like right now the blu-ray is 35 bucks for three, all three yeah. movies but i mean you're getting a shitload of blue uh, of extras with it as well it's a three disc blu-ray feature so 35 bucks is really not that bad for you know you're gonna pe- spend 20 on like a dvd anyway so 35 bucks for this set is really not that bad. If you're interested in Japanese cinema, slow, you know, slow burn cinema, murder mystery, uh, noir films, definitely 
definitely worth a check. So, um, thanks for listening. Um, like, uh, like we end with all the, uh, the podcast oh, episodes. I was going to say, uh, what is a possible next film, which we barely stick to half the time, but <laughs> yeah, we didn't get to you know, Christmas vacation this time, but, uh, maybe, we'll, maybe be, next that, year. That'll be for this cri- upcoming yeah, Christmas. Next Christmas. Um, next time we may, it's hard because we wanted to catch the Hateful Eight in theaters. We still can. We still can. But the problem is, then we can't immediately podcast because the fucking thing's three hours. So if we go to the seven o'clock showing, that's (laughs) 10 o'clock. I got to get up the next day for work. (laughs) It's not easy. It's not easy. And, you know, it's. That, that's the problem, so... We'd have to, we'd have to catch we'd a matinee. We'd, yeah, I mean, we we could do it on, like... You, you know, we could we could catch a Sunday matinee or something like that. If I got out of work early. Yeah, if you got out of work early. We could catch a Sunday matinee and then do it on the weekday. Or we could... We could catch it on a Monday and then do the uh, podcast Tuesday. on a Tuesday or Wednesday. So there, there's those options. So we hope to do the hateful eight because the hateful eight because those. I mean, not only it's Quentin Tarantino directed film, so we like to cover those. I mean, I like Quentin Tarantino. Tarantino's very Kill Bill good. Volume One is where it's at. Kill Bill Volume Two is kind of slow. Uh, <laughs> I like both of them a lot, actually. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, I guess if you're gonna watch them together, then yeah, it's fine. But I really wish they didn't front load all. Well, of Well, I was gonna Biden say, really, I, I wouldn't want to watch them together because if you watch them together, then you're getting all of that, and then you know the first two hours are just like, yeah, you know. I mean, I, and then yeah, after that, really, and then you'd be sitting there going, like, that's my biggest problem with it is that he front loaded volume one and then volume two. Well, is I know, really, I know, I know, really he, dialogue was, and exposition. Well, as I said, I know it was supposed to be released as one big film. Yeah. but um, I can't remember who released the film. I don't know. We if, could do the Godfather and Godfather Two, which just aired on HBO together. You will hate yourself. <laughs> I will. Pers- I don't know how we would have time for I that. Would, I would personally love. I've it. got Fallout Four to play. <laughs> <laughs> I would personally love that, but you you would be killing yourself. Good God! I doubt it. I don't think so. Right. So those are the op- those are options. We also talked about Django Unchained because I have not seen it yet. Still have not seen it. That's not. And you film. own it. Yeah. I so we might as well. And it's on Netflix. And it's on Netflix. Uh, don't have to go the Fargo route and watch it on VHS. <laughs> Still got the Grand Budapest Hotel. Yep, you have that as well. And not so. only that, um, Ash vs. Evil Dead wrapped up, so... I've already watched it. I've probably forgotten it by now. Well, you'd have to you watch it. You have to watch it. Well, I know. that I'm waiting so, to watch it for the podcast, so... So, we can... Yeah, we can do any of those. So, uh, that's... Hopefully, we don't take a month to get back on track again. No, I, I don't. I think we'll be back next week. So, thanks for listening. Catch us on iTunes... On SoundCloud, SoundCloud, I just search for us, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. Uh, Facebook, Blood and Black Rum Podcast. Uh, you can email us at Blood and Black Rum Podcast at gmail.com. No one has yet, and we're really, <laughs> I mean, I'm sitting at the computer waiting to get an email, so you're someone the, email me, please. You're the, you're the guy from the Tim and Eric sketch? Yeah, <laughs> yeah, pretty much. Yeah, you can tweet me at Ryan. R-Y-N-E-T-M-I-A-D-W. Maybe it's because everyone's typing Ryan instead of Ryan. That, that could be. I, that's <laughs> what I'm going to go with. Yeah, they're all typing Ryan. And uh, we're also on Stitcher. Uh, I mean, it, 
the only way you're going to use that, though, is if you, like, own a Honda or something, so. <laughs> you mean a Hyundai? If, yeah, I don't know what it is. Whatever Christina owns, because that's what Mazda? she has on. Is that what it is? I don't yeah, know. She's in a Mazda? Yeah, she, okay, so if you own a Mazda with a, with a, uh, that has, like, smart uh, technology with a GPS, built-in GPS and radio and stuff, then you can get us on Stitcher. Other than that, I don't know who else uses it, but uh, yeah, so you can find us on there. Uh, so definitely uh, th- subscribe to us, and you'll get every single podcast episode. I also post it on my website, themoonsdeadworld.net. This will be up tomorrow on SoundCloud. Uh, thanks for listening, and we will see you next time for one of the myriad movie and TV show things that we... We'll be back with something that we don't <laughs> We'll be back with something, that's for sure. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.